Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wall, and today I am so thrilled to announce that we have my good friend, Dr. Peter Gao, back on the show. Peter studies exoplanets, the myriad worlds that orbit stars other than our sun, especially their atmospheres, to learn more about what those strange new worlds are like and how they formed. He's a staff scientist at Carnegie Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory, the very same fine institution where I now work as a postdoctoral fellow. Peter and I have known each other since graduate school, coming from the same research group at Caltech, and he was on the original Strange New Worlds episode all the way back in 2017, and has come back on board numerous times ever since. Today's discussion is going to be spoiler-heavy, so please take note. You're going to want to stay away from this episode until you've caught up to Star Trek Discovery's Season 4 mid-season finale. That's the seventh episode, titled But to Connect. We were going to center our discussion simply on Discovery, but as you'll soon see after an amazing sixth episode of Star Trek Prodigy's first season, titled Kobayashi, we couldn't help but talk about that one as well. And finally, in case you haven't heard the biggest spoiler of them all, humanity's most powerful telescope ever launched into space, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, was just successfully deployed. Okay, that was kind of a joke. It's not exactly a Star Trek spoiler, but it's a big deal, and we are definitely going to wrap up this conversation by talking about that huge accomplishment for humankind and what it means for the real-life study of strange new worlds. As you can tell, we have so much good stuff to discuss today, so let's get right to it. Engage! Yeah, you want to talk about Prodigy first? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, we should do whatever your plan is, as long as we get to talk about Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> we no, matter where, no matter where you splice it in. I mean, we might as well just do it now if you want. Um, to hell with my preparation and all the questions. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> <I sent> matter. <laughs> yes, the Kobayashi Maru is more important. So what did you think? What did, I mean, first of all, I guess, what, what is your baseline for Prodigy? Have you liked the yeah. first five six episodes as a whole i love it i think there's something about about prodigy that is just very comfortable mm. um i feel like all the other shows that's including the the berman era shows as well as all the new tracks they took their time finding their footing they took their time trying to get the details right trying to get the tone right getting the characters right but i felt prodigy just got it right away all the characters have their shtick uh, have their own personality fleshed out pretty well. Maybe because it's a kid's show, so everything needs to be a little more exaggerated. But the tone, the character is well-defined at this point and has been well-defined since, I think, the beginning. And so it's like I'm watching, you know, the fourth season of a live-action track, for example, where everything is just comfortable and well-running, but we're only seven episodes? We're only seven episodes in, Right. So that's my baseline for Prodigy is that it's just fun to watch every time. It makes me laugh. There's heartwarming scenes. I love it. And then this episode was just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just, <laughs> so, so we, we saw from previews that they were going to end up on the Enterprise D bridge, uh-huh. right? And turn out to be in a hollow program, which is typical. But then I did not know at all that they were going to, put in all the legacy characters and they were mm-hmm. going to use past sound bites and they were going to sort of interact with each other, which is amazing, right? Anybody who's thought who's going to be your bridge crew, pick people out of all the series. There's your bridge. I mean, we played that game for a long time and they yeah. finally did it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I remember we um, went on a hike uh, one time when we were in right. grad school um, and the entire time, basically going down the mountain, we spent debating who we, who we would pick on our dream bridge crew. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they did it. Yeah, they did it. 
they did that. And uh, seeing Dao work through the Kobayashi Maru over and over, <laughs> well, that was hilarious, first of all, the fact that they ch he chose chaos at the end, and he <laughs> almost won. I mean, those are kind of things that they can get away with on a, a quote-unquote kids show where the character can really just do whatever they want. They're not bound by the rules of Starfleet because obviously they're not in Starfleet, mm -hmm. um, right? And that freedom, well, I think the writers really use that freedom to their maximum extent and just have this kid who's like, you know, what am I doing here? We have, a, we have an explosive in engineering, just release him, blow it up and they'll get rid of the Klingons. And so on and so forth, right? All these things that we can think of in our own little fan fiction stories, but they never do because it would make them too powerful or whatever. He did it. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, of course, was a lot of fan service, which I love. I mean, I'm a fan. I like I like fan service. Why not? Uh, uh -huh. Enjoy that a lot. Enjoy seeing Dao sort of learn his lesson and, and looking forward to how his behavior will change. I wonder if it's going to be like a switch, which... I wouldn't put it past them. Kids' shows tend to be a little simpler in terms of uh, character development, a little less nuanced, but we'll see. Uh, but of course, the last bit, uh, the big twist at the end, where Chakotay was the captain of, uh, of the Protostar, and Janeway, or Hollow Janeway, was there, and, but she doesn't remember it, which means there's a huge cover-up that happened, and we don't know what happened. There's also the flashback scene. There's just so much in this episode. Mm -hmm. right? There's also the flashback scene going back to 17 years ago, which I checked uh, was between the episodes Sarek and Menage Troy. And <laughs> I checked. I checked the start. <laughs> you checked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it was like four, uh, four, three, nine something. So I thought maybe it was the best of both worlds, right? Because nine means it's at the end. But no, it's just shy of that. But that was way before Voyager happened, way before the Protostar supposedly launched, right? It must have launched after Janeway came back. So what happened there, right? Why was the Diviner looking for the Protostar 17 years in the past, probably seven, more than 17 years before the Protostar even launched, even existed? Mm. And so there's got to be some time things happening again. Right. So one possibility maybe is Protostar got launched at some point. We don't even know when it launched anymore. Right. It could be launched 10 years in the future. It could be launched in the 25th century for all we know. Uh, well, mm -hmm. not, not obviously not, not the 25th century because Chicote would be dead. No. Uh, well, 24 times. Yeah. I mean, it could be. It depends. Right. It's not too um, far away. It's not too far away. Maybe Chicote has just got a really good skincare regime. <laughs> 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 and he was a captain and so you know maybe it's a decade later maybe it's the 2390s 20, 24 zeros 24 aughts whatever it doesn't need to be right now which is the 2383 right and then got flung back in time and somehow the diviner knew of it and went looking for it which raises the possibility that there might have been an old chakotay hanging out in the delta quadrant this whole time which would be hilarious <laughs> and which and, and opens up the possibility that we might see some scenes from Voyager, the series as seen from old Chakotay who presumably would not want to change the timeline by doing anything, but you could watch, you could be like in a, dis, in a cloaked ship watching Voyager on its way back to the Delta, uh, into the Alpha Quadrant. Who knows? That is quite a speculation. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if it comes true. I think that that is, very fascinating. It had not occurred to me to put the date in context of all of Star Trek. I just thought, mm -hmm. oh, 17 years earlier, obviously, well, these are teenagers, so maybe that's why it's 17 years earlier. Right. And it didn't ever cross my mind to think what was happening in the Federation 17 years earlier. And you're totally right. Lots of different things were happening in the Federation. Chakotay wasn't the captain of anything 17 years earlier, <laughs> as far as we know. Right. So that's that's really interesting to figure out how those puzzle pieces get put together. Exactly. Exactly. For for a bit there, I was worried that perhaps the writers got the dates wrong, and they think, oh, okay, whatever, you know, 17 years ago. But they, you know, maybe they forgot that Voyager came back only a couple of years ago from the perspective of the show, but. No, they know their stuff. Mm -hmm. They definitely know that, yeah, no, 17 years ago, Voyager didn't exist. Janeway was a science officer, probably, right? Yeah. 
So no, they know this. And so there's definitely some timey wimey things going on. I look forward to the timey wimey stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, I have actually been enjoying Prodigy as a whole a lot less than I thought I would. I do not find any of the main characters super compelling (gasps) so far. Uh, I find them very annoying. Maybe this is the difference between me and you, you being a father and dealing with a (laughs) child and me not dealing with children at all in my daily life. But I I found (laughs) all these teenagers absolutely annoying. And I'll be honest, I haven't rewatched any of the Prodigy episodes. Usually when new Star Trek comes out, I see it at least two or three times, Mm. you know, rewatching, trying to catch little bits. I see a Prodigy episode and I'm like, okay, that's done. I'll just wait for the next one to come out. No need to go back. Um, so this was the first episode where I felt compelled to mm. immediately rewatch it. And I mean, it, it has a lot to do with the legacy characters and hearing right. the voices of Rene Albergenois and Leonard Nimoy again, you know, after their, their recent-ish passings. Uh, but it also has a lot to do with, with, the, with the character doll really learning a life lesson as a result of the Kobayashi Maru testing and i think i hope that you're right that <laughs> he makes a not so subtle switch in his uh attitude towards captaincy and becomes a much more likable character to me interesting know. interesting oh no well yeah i'm glad i'm glad you like this episode and i hope you like him more going forward i guess that's an interesting thought that perhaps that's why i enjoy it is because i have been watching lots of children's television in the last couple of years um but that said this might be a more fundamental difference because i i still enjoy children's programming that are not dumbed down obviously if the children the show revolves around children they're not going to be speaking and acting like adults but kids are smart and they will still react reasonably to some extent to, to certain situations and i think that's what draws me to this show is that all the reactions and all the things that they do make sense to me and reasonable for someone of their age and their environment. It's a lot of fun. And it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's a very funny show. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's very different from the typical Trek show where at least some of the characters are professional officers, right? They follow reg- rules and regulations, whereas Dow, for example, just obviously, well, they don't, they don't even know the regulations, but they just do whatever they want. And so that could be very different. But to some extent, I was also looking forward to a character like that at some point. Mm. I mean, rules and regulations are fun. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> rules and regulations are not fun. And so I think it's interesting for a character to look at it from a completely outsider perspective. It's not even sort of the lower decks poking fun at the mm-hmm. sometimes ridiculous rules and regulations. It's more just like, here are the rules. Do they actually make sense if you're not, you're not a member of the Federation, you grew up in the Federation and you're taught all these things that the Federation does, mm-hmm. right? I think a very important thing is Dao is like, does anyone know the people on the Kobayashi Maru? Like mm. you guys, you guys have any like actual connections to these people, or can we just like avoid this trouble and live and survive and yeah. go on with our lives? Which is a completely reasonable reaction from someone who grew up all alone on a prison planet or gallivanting around the galaxy and then get captured and sent to a prison planet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I if it were me, I'd probably do the same thing, you know, because why? But the philosophy of the federation is you help especially if you're an officer mm-hmm. is you help out whenever you can and so i think that was a really eye-opening scene because no one has ever done that right, right. the kobayashi maru since its inception in wrath of khan has been treated in this sort of holy grail test of uh, test of decision making but that was just like no i i know what to do I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bother with that it's the first time anyone's done that in, in the whole of Star Trek. And it made sense. So I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the impulse to to run away. Uh, what actually happened there? Um, he, he tried to run away and then... And then all the other characters are like, nah, you, you can't do oh, that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the rules says you got to respond to the stress call. Imperative, this is the Kobayashi Maru. We have struck a brevitic mine and have lost all power. 
<laughs> what a bunch of whiners. Sir, that ship is located in Gamma Hydra Section 10. The neutral zone. Okay. What's the big deal? Look, the neutral zone is all that separates the Federation from the Klingons. No one is allowed in. Entry into which by either side would constitute an act of war. I'm reading 87 lives, Captain. Shields failing, hull breach imminent. They're um... running out of time. Quick show of hands. Does anyone know these people? Excuse me. What does it matter? So nobody then. Okay, this one's easy. Reverse course and warp us out of here. You heard the cap. Back it up. Not acceptable. Their very lives hang on what we do. Or on what this vessel fails to do. All good points. Everybody, everybody, calm down. I'm in command, so I'm allowed to. I don't care whether it's the law or not. I will not do it. You can order me all you want. As of now, I'm resigning my commission. Oh, let's do that. Yes, mutiny. Yes, mutiny, mutiny, mutiny. No. Jeez, everybody cool it. Ah, oh, fine. Change course for the neutral zone. Yeah, it's just so, so interesting that I have this very opposite reaction to the two animated shows that we've had recently, mm. where I was dreading Lower Decks. I did not think that that was a good idea at all. I did mm -hmm. not consider Star Trek to be a comedy. I <laughs> thought it was a very serious and like live action thing. You know, right. it's just that's the way Star Trek should be portrayed. And I ended up just loving it so much. Um, <laughs> I think it's my favorite of the new Star Trek series wow. by far. And then I was so looking forward to Prodigy, you know, even as an adult, getting ready to, you know, relive my teenage years growing mm. up on star trek and oh yeah star trek for kids finally they're making a show that i wish i had you know 10 15 years ago and i felt a little bit let down by the first couple of mm. episodes maybe it was the the rapid pace at which they just got everybody together and and gwen like mm. just reversed on her father very quickly just a little bit i guess simplistic storytelling for me mm. um but but I think after this episode, I am reinvigorated in my anticipation for the rest of season one of Prodigy. It's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure. Nice. Okie dokie. So should we talk about what we planned on talking about? Yes. <laughs> you can cut that down. <laughs> yeah. No, it was all really good discussion. I love the yeah. contrasting points of view. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we agreed on quite a bit too. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting to come at it uh, from a different perspective yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Really it's okay it. to not like them, not like some things. Now, Star Trek is like my family. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't like it, I have to love it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, I don't like you but i love you <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so on to discovery so yeah. peter last time that we had you on strange new worlds it was spring of 2021 and we both just watched the trailer mm -hmm. for star trek discovery's fourth season and i remember us both reacting a little bit ambivalently to the gravitational anomaly which we now know as the dma dark matter <laughs> anomaly being the big baddie for the season. And now that we've seen the first half of season four, I thought we'd check in to see how things are going. So why not start with the DMA? Has this villain uh, of sorts, antagonist, this dilemma that the crew is facing turn out to be more or less or just about as intriguing as you thought it would be when you saw that trailer? Oh, it's turned out to be way more intriguing than I expected. From the trailer, it just seemed like an anomaly that was just doing its own thing. And somehow our character will have to react to it. But the fact that it became personal within one episode, right, by destroying Book's planet, really upped the ante, made the stakes much higher because now, now it direct, well, first of all, it directly affected one of our characters. And so he is treating it as a personal thing. And once it affects our characters in that way, then we can all come along for the ride. And so that's one very important aspect is that the anomalies actions essentially dragged all of our heroes into it more than just, oh, there's a threat out there and let's see what the sensors say, right? So beyond that, there's also the impact on the rest of the galaxy. And so it was, it was really fun seeing sort of some of the political happenings uh, in the background and I like the way that they 
sort of put all these political aspects all together in sort of this maybe almost West Wing. Like, I don't know, I've never watched West Wing, but, but, it, seemed like, but it seemed like those are the kind of show where, okay, th this party wants this, but this party wants the other thing. And how do we make them agree? And this kind of political intrigue. And they used the uh, anomaly in that uh, for their negotiations with Navarre, for example. So that was a, a fun, uh, fun aspect as well. And of course, it got a hundred times more intriguing once we figured out that it wasn't a natural phenomenon, that there was an all-powerful race behind the anomaly. And what's more important is that they come from outside the galaxy. I thought that was a really interesting twist. I don't know if that was the first time they referenced the galactic barrier uh, since the was the kind of first official episode. Uh, no, second, whatever. <laughs> or the second <laughs> pilot or whatever, you know, where, where no man's down before. Uh, and so the fact that they referenced that was a real, whoa, moment. And so now there's really not much we can predict about what's coming up. What is this mysterious species 10C? And what is, what's the point of this anomaly? Uh, why did they create it? What is it actually doing? It actually hasn't done much, that said, since destroying Book's Planet. It destroyed those asteroids um, with the Pinot Colony on it. But beyond that, it's sort of just been drifting around and, and not doing much, which that was a bit of a, a slight disappointment because I thought it would just do more things, right? Maybe destroy more planets, as terrible as that is. Right now, the stakes aren't actually that high for the entire galaxy. It's kind of just, it's kind of been not doing anything. <laughs> well, yeah. it did that one other thing. It, it, it disrupted what? an Oort cloud and sent a bunch of methane ice. Uh... Oh, right. <laughs> I laughed at that scene because <laughs> that, you know, yeah, sure. There would be methane ice out uh, yeah. in those regions of a solar system. Although it probably wouldn't be the dominant uh, form of right. ice. Water right. ice would still dominate. Water ice, maybe some CO out there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the science aspect of it is, was sort of, on overdrive, especially that second episode when they started talking about, you know, supermassive black holes and stuff, the, the size scales then didn't go over very well with me. I mean, if that thing was five light years across, but what was it? A couple of AUs is where the, the disruption radius was. I don't know. That didn't quite make sense, but I'm sure someone was much more well-versed in astrophysics <laughs> instead of planetary science and probably poke many hole, many more holes in there. But I was just glad that they dove so deep. They were brave enough to, to dive so deep into the science. Uh, so, Peter, you mentioned that, uh, you know, this DMA seems to be constructed by someone beyond the shores of our own galaxy. Um, like you, I really loved that touchstone to the galactic barrier from the original series. Star Trek has really very rarely ventured outside of our own galaxy, and I think that this plot development really opens up a lot of new possibilities, a whole new playground. What are your hopes for the DMA's origins, for its creators, and for their intentions? Gosh, I really have no idea. Like right now, I feel like there is a complete freedom to do whatever they want. And I don't even have any expectations at this point. I mean, I hope they make it as alien as one would expect for a species that is beyond uh, the Milky Way. I mean, what's the point of going outside a galaxy versus just a species that's really far away from Federation space, right? Maybe on the other side of the galaxy. Maybe it's a, someone beyond the Dominion, the Gamma Quadrant, or beyond the, the Kazon on the, in the Delta Quadrant. Why do they have to be outside of the galaxy? And so I like them, species 10C, to be someone's or some things that is worthy of being outside the galaxy from the, in terms of the realm of, of Star Trek star storytelling. Because like you said, we pretty much never encounter anything from outside the galaxy beyond the Kelvins, right, from the, the mm -hmm. original series. And that's pretty much it. And so in a very long answer, I basically have no expectations. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said, what's the point of going outside the galaxy and, you know, then encountering some like equivalent of Klingons or Vulcans and then having right. to debate with them about your DMA thing is destroying us. You know, that's just so like they could have been somewhere in the Gamma Quadrant or mm -hmm. something like that. So right. something outside of the galaxy should be 
so different from us. Um, I still think the DMA might be holding some secrets. I mean, there, there wasn't super compelling evidence to me that the DMA had to be constructed by something. Mm-hmm. I guess they somehow know, or Tarka somehow knows, that there is a device at its center. But how he knew that, I have no idea, because they couldn't ever really get close to it. But in any case, I'm still holding out for the DMA being a natural phenomenon. Just, oh, just really? because just because one of my bingo squares was that the DMA is a natural phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so on the subject of the DMA, and since I just brought up this new character, Ruan Tarka, uh, mm-hmm. we were introduced to him kind of late on in this first half of the season, in episode five, where I thought he was portrayed as basically a mad scientist and an absolute prick. But in the mid-season finale, he reveals to Book that his efforts to stop the DMA at any cost are fueled by a profound desire to escape from a place of pain and suffering. And that, I think, makes him a bit less of a contemptible person, someone that we could actually potentially sympathize with. As a fellow scientist yourself, Peter, what have you made of this new character, Ruan Tarka? Well, I love the way he was introduced as someone who never cited Stamets despite <laughs> using his work. <laughs> I feel like whoever wrote that part of the script when Stamets was talking to um, Hugh, they knew that feeling in their mm. heart. <laughs> they mm. might have been a, a, an academic before uh, being a scriptwriter for Star Trek, <laughs> uh, for Star Trek, because that right. So that that was that was hilarious. Uh, that Stamets. And he would, Stamets would be the kind of person to have a problem with that, despite the fact that they were trying to save the galaxy at the time. Mm-hmm. So I thought Tarka, I didn't actually, I didn't hate him. I put it that way. I thought, yes, this guy is definitely a, a prick, like you said. But you know, he was right in a lot of ways. The way that he behaved was not very nice, but what he wanted to do was right right you wanted to create a model which again is also (laughs) a lot of fun (laughs) it's like you're speaking my language how can i hate you yeah so he he went about it right he he did he did the modeling he did the calculations he came up with a device everything he's doing he was just like look i'm right and sometimes you just can't fault a person for that even though they're annoying so you know i never hated him i enjoyed watching him I enjoyed his interactions with Stamets. I mean, the fact that Stamets came around at the end of episode five, right? Even though he never got cited, Stamets still ended up respecting Ruan Tarka for, for what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the big reveal uh, in the mid-season finale that he's actually trying to go to another universe. Again, the hint dropping of a multiverse, just like last season with the Kelvin timeline time soldier. I feel like Discovery is definitely flirting with this multiverse idea. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't put it past them to have some of the Kelvin universe or maybe some other universe entirely. Uh, It need not be the mirror universe. They actually talked about that, that there's more than just the mirror universe and the prime universe. Mm -hmm. They're flirting with this idea of of connecting universes. And so I think there's definitely something going on over there, which Ruin Tarka seems to be the linchpin. Oh, yeah, for sure. That would be really fun if this somehow led us to the Kelvin timeline or <laughs> some something like that. And yes, uh, I completely agree. Star Trek has definitely set in stone that there is a multiverse. Um, I guess even back to episodes in TNG where they see the different quantum realities yeah. and, and things like that. And with Discovery and the spore drive and the mycelial network simply being uh, an avenue to quickly access these different realities. I think we can probably look forward to more jumps to other universes and other timelines in the future. I think that would be so fun to see a crossover with the Kelvin timeline. Absolutely. So you brought up Book. Uh, Book has had a huge arc this season. There's been almost more character development to Book in the past five, six episodes, then we've seen character development to some of the main characters in like four seasons, <laughs> in <Right>. my opinion. <laughs> yes. But it's been so fun to watch because um, David Ajala is just such a good actor um, mm. portraying this emotion and this grief. Um, so 
Book basically lost his whole family and his whole world in episode one of season four. And he's really been struggling with that loss ever since. Throughout the season, and especially in the mid-season finale, Book is also at odds with his romantic partner, Michael Burnham, about how to deal with the threat of the DMA. And this just adds yet another layer of emotional stress <laughs> to the storyline. Peter, what's it been like for you to watch Book go from the confident, swashbuckling, maverick, rogue-type character that we saw in season three to a person representing the last of his kind in season four? I absolutely adore it. I think um, Book has been the standout secondary. I mean, it wouldn't even be secondary character at this point. I think Book is just one of the most intriguing, one of the best written, best acted characters in Star Trek Discovery, bar none. I enjoy all of his scenes. I think, again, I go back to his reactions being reasonable and understandable. And no matter how much you may disagree, it completely makes sense that he will want to stop the anomaly right now, no matter what. And also, Book didn't just lose his family and his world, he lost them after getting them back. Right. He was estranged from them, he was estranged from his brother and nephew for however many years. We learned that it's because, I guess, he didn't approve of his father's way of life. And that, at least, is one reason why he sort of cut off his connection to the rest of the family, to his world, and became a, a swashbuckling space adventurer. But at the end of season three, he renewed that connection. He was uh, there for his nephew's very important, um, I guess, growing up ceremony. And I knew at the time it was too happy. Uh-huh. Something uh-huh. terrible was going to happen. <laughs> I remember those uh, words. Yes. <laughs> we were watching it together. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Day. Yeah, with our masks on, we had hijacked one of the conference rooms after work (laughs) and put the season premiere up on the big screen. Uh, And as that happy music was flowing, the the screen was emanating its gold, (laughs) the golden sunshine of Quajan, and um, his nephew was prancing around. Peter, you said, (laughs) this is too happy. This is bad. This This is terrible. Something terrible is going to be. And then right away, it started. (laughs) It started happening. Now, this is, I mean, this is a a very well used trope, right? That the happiest the character gets is right before that happiness is taken away. And so at the time, basically that moment, uh, Book had everything he wanted. He had his family back. He had his planet back. He had a love of his life. Everything was going great. And then it was just all destroyed. And then, you know, he still had that connection with Michael, but how can you possibly connect with someone who doesn't know the pain of their entire world being destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. And then as the season developed, that fissure essentially got worse and worse because Book realized that Michael was choosing Starfleet, choosing Starfleet rules and regulations over him, which again, makes sense for Michael, but also makes sense that Book doesn't like that. Right. Uh, especially again, like book is coming from the outside. He doesn't understand why you have to follow these rules and regulations so much. Like you were having lots of fun for that year. We were hanging out together by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Why are you so enamored with Starfleet right now? You know, why yeah. are you, why are you going against my wishes? I just love the way that they, they slowly develop that over the entire first half of the season. I think that story arc in and of itself is probably one of the best written parts of, of discovery. Just that very gradual character arc between these two very, powerful characters. And at the end, of course, Book gave his heartfelt speech. It wasn't the ravings of a lunatic who's driven to madness from his grief. It was a very reasonable call for help to end this slaughter by the anomaly. And Michael turned around and was like, I'm sorry, I, I got I gotta perform, I gotta do my duty. So that was like, okay, this is the fruition of the entire first half of the season. This right here. Never mind the story of the DMA. This was what Discovery has been about, at least, you know, a good chunk of it has been about this entire part of the season. It's been about these two characters reacting to this in different ways, but also drifting apart slowly because of, of how they're reacting. Yeah, super, super powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see where it goes and if they can make amends. Right. Another really important character shift that we saw this season was Tilly's departure from Mm. the crew of the USS Discovery for a teaching post at Starfleet Academy. 
you know, in a way, Peter, this resembles <laughs> certain career trajectories that we are very really? familiar with. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, seems completely foreign to me. Uh, <laughs> yes. Gosh. Yeah. How did you react to Tilly's personal discovery about her career trajectory and her ultimate decision to leave the ship? It was too real. Honestly, it was like way too real. <laughs> um, except it, it's sort of the opposite, right? So our trajectory in our career has been going from grad student to postdoc to hopefully a, a permanent position. That's been our goal so that we can continue doing science. Well, so in, in a sense, it's not too similar because I'm certainly doing this not because of my parents. I'm doing this because I love science. Whereas Tilly is joining Starfleet and doing everything because she wanted to impress uh, her mother. But I think what is similar is that we always want to get to that permanent position or faculty position. And at some sometimes it does feel like autopilot. Like, is that actually what we want, right? Is a faculty position or a permanent position in science what we actually want? Or is just what we've been told? Because for a long time, that's, or at least since when we were uh, younger students, we were told that that is the only trajectory open to us. If we're doing astronomy or planetary science, there's not much application of that outside of academia. And so you might as well put your head down, keep writing papers and keep going until you become a professor, right? But I think that's certainly changed. I think this idea has definitely shifted, especially in the last couple of years, where people are like, no, if you have a PhD or a master's in astronomy or physics or planetary science, you have the skills to go to industry, to, to startups, to tech companies, nonprofits, what have you. Lots of places you can go. So in that sense, that's where the parallel with Tilly's story comes in, is that she thinks she wants to be in Starfleet because that's what she set her mind to all these years is the goal is to impress her mother to be in Starfleet. But she never thought, okay, well, what do I actually really want? What do I actually want to do with my skills? And eventually she made the, the decision that, no, actually, I want to teach. I don't want to continue doing this. I don't want to be essentially going along the command chain to to captain the captaincy which is ironic because we all our goal is to have a teaching job but <laughs> <laughs> she leaving her path means getting a teaching job so in that sense it was very very interesting seeing the parallels between what she went through and, and what we're going through and I think okay yeah the very important part is that for a long time leaving academia uh, has been seen as a failure has been seen as like how dare you you can't make an academia. That's why you're leaving to go to Google or whatever. Whereas that is not, not, not close to the case, right? That's just personal choice. You do whatever you want. And same thing with Tilly. I think she made to, perhaps to herself a very painful decision. That's why she was so distraught over those episodes because she is essentially fighting within herself. Like she's always been telling herself, if I succeed in Starfleet, I'm successful in life. Whereas what she wants and what she sees as success is no longer the same. And so she's fighting inside. She's making a painful decision. By the end of the day, it's possibly the right one for her. We'll see. We'll see what happens when she shows up again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I resonate with so much of, of what you said. Um, I remember going to a career fair early on in grad school after I had landed at Caltech. Uh, and I walked around this, this gymnasium looking at all the booths. Only two booths wanted to talk to me because they just wanted to talk to computer scientists. You know, they were just like, yeah, we want to hire those computer scientists. And so I only got to speak to two people. One was Ball Aerospace and the other was the U.S. Marine Corps. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I, I really know this feeling of feeling very constrained by your career path. The only thing I can ever imagine myself doing with this degree that I'm going to get is to essentially stay in academia and pursue this goal of becoming um, a tenure track professor or uh, the equivalent somewhere mm -hmm. at a national lab or a NASA facility. And for Tilly, you know, I, I can see how she was really struggling with this narrow, similarly narrow career path that she had put herself on towards captaincy, and then finding that truth within herself that success to her means something else besides reaching captaincy and right. to have the courage to take that truth and tell everybody and make that profound switch 
was really powerful. And like you said, I think I think academia and industry are waking up to this idea that after you've gone through, you know, five, six, seven years of graduate school doing astronomy, planetary science, or whatever technical field it may be, you have the skills and the ability to learn that will allow you to succeed in whatever That's industry. Right. And so hopefully these other companies these days are approaching more people at the career fairs than what right. I saw. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're slowly understanding that hopefully, you know, a PhD doesn't mean, well, it does mean that you're an expert in a very narrow niche of science or, or whatever topic you're doing. It means you are good at solving problems. Yeah. And uh, hey, I just love that Tilly is, you know, leaning on everything that she's gone through in her mm -hmm. own career as a junior officer on the discovery to basically embolden new minds and uh we'll, we'll see how that goes i hope she comes back you know i miss her yeah. I, I definitely yeah. do as as a viewer i, I miss seeing tilly but uh, i hope she's doing fine over there yeah. in starfleet academy i also wonder what the plan is i guess mm -hmm. right is this because of a real life situation where uh, mary wiseman needs to step away for some time or is it a purely creative decision to have tilly be away for a couple of episodes and then coming back later. So if it was completely creatively driven, then I'm definitely, yeah, looking forward to why they did this, essentially. I, I did read somewhere uh, that it was a creative decision on the part okay. of the writers. Um, so Okay, cool. We will see. We'll see. I mean, if, she, if they needed someone at uh, Starfleet Academy to be a, a very important plot point, then perhaps that's what it is. Or maybe yeah. start their own Starfleet Academy series. Ah, <laughs> hmm, interesting. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, talk about one last plot point from the first half of season four, which is the theme of new life emerging from a previously unrecognized form into one that is seen. So there are two instances of this. One of them is Gray's incorporation, and the second is Zora's evolution into a fully sentient AI. Um, Zora being the sphere data melded with the discoveries computer core, I guess, um, and forming this highly adaptable, very intelligent, and now emotionally feeling mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. Um, so one of the biggest things from the mid-season finale, episode seven, was that we saw the crew, but mostly Stamets in particular, struggling to accept Zora and um, her new being uh, and standing um, as, as a crew member and to trust her, basically. Peter, what have you made of Zora's arc and, and the story of the crews coming to accept her? I enjoy that it has been a very long arc and it's been more or less subtle in the background, maybe an offhand comment once or twice. And so I like that it was a gradual and natural progression. And I think after certainly the uh, previous episode, not the missing finale, the one right before it, it's time for the story arc to come to a head. And I'm definitely with Stamets. At the beginning of the mid season finale, I was definitely with Stamets because, oh, right, if you have, right, if you have essentially your house, if your house is, is alive and is unhappy and wants to just beam you into space, then uh, that's a problem. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I really, really enjoyed the way they handled that storyline. In fact, I would say the mid-season finale was my favorite of the entire um, season so far. It's just how they dovetailed the two storylines together and the way they solved uh, the issue by just going head on into the idea that Zora is life. She is a life form. And so why not just have her join Starfleet like any other life form could? And so that was, I think, the perfect solution. And it really opens up much, many more storylines going forward. Uh, it does seem like the end of a story arc, but we know that from here on out, it has to connect to Calypso at some point. And so there's more to go. There's more to see. Yes, absolutely. Um, I would love to see a, a direct connection to Calypso, if not this season, sometime down the road. And I love that at the climax, when they realize and come to accept and acknowledge Zora's living state, uh, it really reminded me of 
uh, that TNG episode, Measure of a Man, where mm. Picard is trying to defend Data's rights and points at Data and says, Starfleet's mission is to seek out new life. And there it sits. You know, sometimes yes. these these discoveries come from really unexpected places. You think new life is going to take the form of an organic sludge somewhere on some planet, but no, it's actually the wiring of your starship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this is not anywhere near as profound as gaining a brand new body or being recognized as a life form for the first time. But um, one moment that I can relate to from my personal life is when I came to accept myself as a scientist, I took a really long time um, kind of seeing myself as a scientist, even though I was doing research, you know, as like a summer intern, as an undergrad, yeah. you know, just doing things. But, but I kept on thinking to myself, like, am I really a scientist yet? Like, what am I doing that the professor couldn't do in like five minutes by himself? <laughs> and I remember the first time that I actually felt like a scientist, which was at the AGU meeting, the American Geophysical Union meeting, where my advisor was giving a talk. And right next to his name on the title slide was my name. And I, mm-hmm. I saw my name projected on that slide. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm a scientist. <laughs> um, and wow. yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it just seems like that's just a tiny sliver of what Gray or Zora must be right. going through um, as they become seen to the rest of the crew. That, you know, Zora has found what even she is as, 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 a, as an emerging mm-hmm. artificial intelligence. It must have been very strange, that emergence you're talking about just possessing the the self-awareness and yeah I, I can't i can't i cannot imagine it i don't think i'm capable of imagining that kind of transition it's my official determination that zora is indeed a new life form it feels marvelous what does being seen Then Starfleet's rule against integrated AI does not apply. Correct. So what happens now? You said you had a recommendation. Yes, uh, I was going to propose that Zora join us, join Starfleet as a specialist, unless I think it is a wonderful idea. Okay, you ready to switch gears, Peter? Let's do it. Okay, okay. So something really big happened over the holidays. It was the successful launch of a brand new telescope that will revolutionize astronomy called JWST. This is an infrared telescope. So it's sensitive to the glow of the heat of dusty accretion disks and small stars that often circle black holes. And so in a way we've launched a telescope that can scan real life gravitational anomalies in a new way to learn about them from a different point of view. It kind of reminds me how Burnham ordered some spectral thingy to fully view the DMA early on in season four of Discovery. Um, But studying gravitational anomalies, black holes, accretion disks, that's just one of the many things that JWST can do. You and I, of course, are far more interested in the planetary side of things. Um, Now, we haven't really talked very much about this groundbreaking telescope on strange new worlds yet. I guess I didn't want to jinx it (laughs) or something. Uh, But, you know, there was a lot of anxiety around its launch um, and its deployment. Peter, could you tell us a little bit more about why we were all so anxious about uh, JWST in the space science community? So there are a couple of reasons. Um, I think one of them is just general ignorance of the engineering behind the telescope. I mean, certainly... I work with computer models. I play with very old codes. I am not up on how to build instruments or telescopes. And so the whole thing seemed like magic, frankly. And the idea of launching this gigantic thing up there and it has to unfold was, again, just absolutely ridiculous to me. So to put it into context, in order to, to fit JWST into the fairing of the rocket that brought it up there, it needs to be completely compact, origami style. And once it was released, it has to go through essentially 30 days of unfolding the entire telescope. 
And it went from something that was essentially cylindrical in shape to a diamond-shaped telescope, uh, the diamond being its sun shield, and the mirror itself sticks out of that sun shield. Uh, and the mirror itself also has a secondary mirror that had to unfold. And so there were parts of this which, as a theorist, just seemed like, how can you possibly do this? Uh, one is the sun shield. The sun shield has to go from a completely folded and wrinkled up entity to being stretched out into a giant diamond the size of a tennis court without tearing or ripping or getting caught on anything. And so, for, I mean, and it worked. It worked perfectly. And also the, the uh, secondary mirror has to swing down from the top of the primary mirror, which is the 6.5 giant gold mirror that you've seen probably in press releases and, and artist impressions. It has to swing down. And without that secondary mirror, light will go onto the primary giant mirror and then just reflect off back in the universe. And we would not have any data. It's that secondary that makes all the difference. And it has to swing into place and lock and focus. Otherwise, this entire mission would have been a complete failure right away. And so have to say that worked perfectly too. And so uh, at this point, we are essentially uh, nearing the end. The primary mirror itself is also slightly folded and the two sides of the mirror has to uh, essentially unfold and that will give us the full mirror. And after that, it needs to focus. Uh, and for the next six months, it has to go through commissioning. But we are near the end uh, of this period. And so even though I was extremely afraid, everything worked out well, uh, but that was one reason why we were anxious. Another very important aspect of this is that a lot of what we do, exoplanet science, hinges on JWST performing. I wouldn't say we've reached the limit of uh, what we can do with Hubble Space Telescope and ground-based telescopes, but a lot of very interesting science can only be done by JWST. And one reason is that JWST has a bigger mirror than Hubble. It can collect 10 times more photons, more light than Hubble. And so it can allow us to see fainter objects, smaller signals, and so on. Because it's an infrared telescope, we can also see to longer wavelengths where very interesting molecules absorb. And so if we can capture these wavelengths, capture the absorption from these molecules, then we can infer the compositions of atmospheres of other planets, parsecs, many light years. Uh, from here and possibly even uh, signatures of biology, although that's sort of also at the limit of JWST at that point. And so between just how complicated this thing is, even though it's worked out pretty well, so that's good, and how much hinges on this is why we were very anxious <laughs> about this thing launching successfully and deploying successfully. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, such a complicated process to get it to where it needs to be and to have it unfold correctly. And it's of utmost importance that it does every single little thing right. And so the combination of those two yes. <laughs> just sends everybody's nerves through the roof. You and I both woke up early Christmas morning to yes. watch the live stream of JWST's launch. Peter, could you maybe describe the emotions that coursed through your veins as you watched that rocket take flight? Uh, how did that excitement compare to like the most exciting viewing of Star Trek that you've ever had? <laughs> well, my career doesn't depend on Star Trek. <laughs> so, so it's a definitely different kind of feeling than watching Star Trek. As much fun as I, I have watching Star Trek, I mean, it, it doesn't quite compare to the clammy handedness of watching WSD launching. Um, I will say that because of the launch, I didn't get much sleep the night before. And so it was 6 a.m. Uh, over here on the East Coast and the launch was an hour and a half away and I was basically ready to get up. At that point, there was no hope for me to, to get back to sleep. So I was up at 6 a.m. I was browsing Twitter and just kind of taking the time away for this thing to launch. And then at 7.20 a.m. on the dot, East Coast time, rocket took off. My heart was beating at, I don't know, 160 beats per minute. <laughs> My hands were shaking. Uh, they were very cold. I was trying to tweet at the same time and that was almost impossible because the keys are so small. We tweeted Honest the exact same thing. Uh, yeah, the, really? the second it launched, we both tweeted, 
James Cromwell playing Zephram Cochran <laughs> in the Phoenix screaming. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> of course. Phoenix took first contact. Oh, uh, that's that's <laughs> magnificent. Of course, that's of course the thing that we're gonna post. Oh my god, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I didn't know what to expect, right? I mean, I think in the in, in my heart, in my brain, in the deepest parts of my brain, I knew this was gonna be fine. I mean, the engineers they know what they're doing but still it's that kind of primal fear of of not really knowing really what's going to happen and so the rocket took off everything was fine i didn't understand anything they were saying because they were talking in french but they were saying blah 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 blah. Not me now. okay all right not me now okay okay that, that that sounds like english phenomenal and so it must be going well and so you know the guy by the way named jean luc right <laughs> which was amazing and he was bald so that was i was like Thank you. Thank you, universe. That was perfect. So yeah, I mean, he just kept saying something, something in French and then nominal and then normal and nominal. It's like, okay, good, 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 good. I'll keep saying these words that mean good things that sound the same between French and English. Thank you. And so, <laughs> and then eventually, of course, uh, the rocket went up. Everything was perfect. In fact, the rocket uh, trajectory was so well aligned with what they wanted that the solar panels came out ahead of schedule, which at the time was a bit of a worry because we thought, okay, well, if that was different from the schedule, then maybe something's up. But actually, it's just because it was such a perfect launch that it was allowed to uh, unfold early. And also, because the rocket was launched, the, the, again, the trajectory was so well, they didn't need to use much fuel to course correct towards their destination, which means we get enough fuel to potentially observe with the telescope for significantly longer than uh, what was proposed, which is 10 years. And so, yeah, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that morning was just unbelievable. And then to shift to father mode, <laughs> to like open presence, was <laughs> that was definitely a, a very fun-filled, fun-filled morning. Yeah. Aww, yeah. Well, yeah. what better present than to have <laughs> right. ESD launch correctly? That's right. Yeah, you know, Peter, we're just so looking forward to the day that JWST brings us first light of exoplanets, uh, especially planets that we care very deeply about understanding more. We're planetary scientists, but living in an age where we can't yet travel to other solar systems. Um, so we launch telescopes like JWST to study distant worlds from our home. And for our generation, this means that launching a new space telescope is basically analogous to developing a faster warp drive, like the Warp 5 engine from Enterprise, or inventing a totally new mode of propulsion like the Spore Drive. It ushers in a new era of space exploration, basically. So specifically in terms of exoplanetary science, how will JWST revolutionize our knowledge of strange new worlds? So there's a lot of ways that JWST will help us understand exoplanets better. For one thing, because it can see fainter targets, it can collect more photons, collect more light. It will allow us to probe down to ever smaller planets. Whereas for Hubble or other telescopes, Earth-sized planets may not show up as more than just some wiggles above the noise, which JWST will be potentially be able to see sub-signals from their atmospheres as they cross in front of their stars. Light filtering through their atmospheres, getting to our telescopes, allows us to probe their compositions, and JWST will be one of the telescopes that will hope us, ho hopefully allow us to probe those compositions. And perhaps, and this is sort of at the limit of what JWST can do, like I said, see some signs of biological activity. That's sort of the, the holy grail that probably on the edge for JWST, but we'll see. Because JWST can see greater wavelengths, uh, wavelength out to 12, 20, 30 microns, it will allow us to probe lots of different molecular bands. And by this, I mean different gases absorb lights of different wavelengths. And until now, a lot of the wavelengths have been unreachable by both space and ground-based telescopes. So JWST will hopefully help us probe those wavelengths and search for different gases in planetary atmospheres. So there are two groups of planets that uh, I think JWST will do a really good job on that I'm very interested to see what we find, which are the hot Jupiters, quote unquote hot Jupiters, and the sub-Neptune. So hot Jupiters are giant planets that orbit very close to their stars, much closer than Mercury. And just as context, the giant planets in our own solar system orbit way out at five times uh, five or more times the distance uh, between Earth and the Sun, so Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. These hot Jupiters orbit so close that they take four days to go around their star, whereas Earth takes a year. 
And so these are mysterious worlds. We don't have any of those in the solar system. And we want to know why they are there. Did they move there from the outer reaches of their solar system or were they born there? And so one way to tell is to investigate their atmospheres. And with JWST, we'll be able to build a very high quality spectrum of their atmospheres over a very large wavelength range, which is what we need to get a, a lock on their compositions. So that's very exciting. Now the sub-Neptunes are a whole other class of planets. They have sizes between Earth and Neptune in our own solar system. Now in our own solar system, there is nothing that has a size uh, between that of Earth and Neptune. And so again, these are a class of planets that we have no idea what they're like. We don't have any of them in the solar system. We've never seen any of them up close. But with JVST, we'll be able to investigate them a lot better and hopefully understand a little bit, again, of their atmospheric composition, which can help us understand their origins. Yeah, so it's, it's getting to know how these very different kinds of planets form and giving us the data we need to piece together the stories of their formation so that we can understand how strange new worlds that we don't have any examples of in our solar system came to be in the first place. Um, exactly. That's a really exciting research question and best of luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> Let me know if I can help. <laughs> yes, yes. Definitely looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is this is so cool. Um, we are going to get so much cool information and uh, undoubtedly we will have many surprises ahead of us that we will relay to you here on Strange New Worlds. <laughs> I think the most important part of JWST is that it's launching at a time where we actually understand the landscape of exoplanets out there. Hubble was launched at the end of the 80s when we didn't even know about exoplanets in the first place. The first exoplanet that orbited a sun-like star was confirmed in 1995. And so JWST is really the first space telescope that's being launched in the age of exoplanets. And so throughout the last two plus decades, we've come to know thousands and thousands of exoplanets and their demographics. And so we tried to kind of nibble at uh, exoplanet science with what we had before in terms of ground-based facilities and the Hubble Space Telescope, but we were never quite there. It was never enough signal or never enough wavelength coverage. There's never enough technology to get us what we want. Well, JWST is sort of the promised land. It's, the technologies that we need to really do a population level study of all these mysterious, strange new worlds out there. And we've been waiting decades for yes. it as well. I remember when we were in grad school, we thought, oh, maybe we would get JWST data to nope. do our theses with. Nope. Uh, it got delayed and then it got delayed. Maybe we thought, okay, in our postdocs, we will get to use JWST data. It got delayed again. Yes. Finally, this, uh, this generation of graduate students will get that opportunity and yes. how wonderful that will be. So thank you again, Peter, for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It's always a blast to you know talk to you about Star Trek and science and the latest developments in both. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Peter Gao, helping me to recap all of the latest happenings in the Star Trek universe and one big happening in the astronomical community in real life. For more Peter in your life, you can follow him on Twitter at PlanetaryGao, that's Planetary G-A-O, and I'm also on that Bluebird site at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. I feel like I say this every time Peter beams aboard, but he is just one of my favorite people to talk to about practically anything. I feel so privileged to have such a good friend, such a thoughtful person, and such an inspiring colleague in my life. To learn more about what JWST will do for astrophysics beyond planetary science, you can check out former Strange New Worlds guest Sheehan Kim's article about the scope's vast abilities for Smithsonian Magazine, which I've linked to in the show notes. Also, it's worth noting that JWST's name has been the subject of some controversy as of late. We didn't have time to fit that into today's podcast, but I've left links to some resources in the show notes. 
Star Trek Prodigy may not have been totally my cup of tea yet, but the season has barely begun, and I am excited to see what comes next. Sometimes, the best character arcs are the ones that grow on you. But regardless, I'll have way more to say about the science that we see in Star Trek Prodigy, both super awesome real-life space phenomena and things that made me scratch my head on a future episode of Strange New Worlds. So stay tuned and stay safe, everyone. Please take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy the rest of Prodigy Season 1, Discovery Season 4, and until next time, see you out there. Oh, here's a fun question. Can I ask yeah. you a fun question? Yeah, of course. If you could appear on one of the Star Trek series that are currently in production, mm. which one would it be and why? Oh, man. So which, which, which tracks are currently in production? <laughs> so okay, so there's Lower Decks, there's Discovery, there's Picard, and there's Prodigy, right? And then Strange New Worlds, but that one's not out yet, so we don't really know right. uh, what's happening. You but could those say are... Strange New Worlds, I guess, because we do have a flavor of what that might be like right. from season two of Discovery. Maybe Lower Decks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me about your character on Lower Decks. I, I think you'd be perfect for that show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll be a Lower Decker for sure. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll probably be like the, the science division guy who's just doing his own thing, trying to survive on the ship and trying not to participate on any uh, away missions. <laughs> I'm a theorist. I don't do observations. So With I'm like that guy, guy on Voyager. Voyager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the guy that's on like deck 15 or whatever, who's just happy being on the bottom of the ship, running his simulations on the ship's computer, and just like, whatever. I don't want to be on his, I don't want to be on a way mission. You do you guys do your, you know, second contact. I'll be here running my models on how like, I don't know, black holes work or whatever. <laughs> oh man no peter you're way too good natured to be that guy i mean if we were on the same <laughs> ship i would be down in deck 15 hanging out with you all the time and <laughs> oh man i would love to be on lower decks as well that would be super cool but if you were on lower decks you would have to go into a sound studio rather than the actual set. Oh, so. <laughs> wait, you mean like in the world or as an actor? Hold on a second. There's, you didn't mention that. No, no, no. If it was that, then Strange New World, because I get to sit on the original Enterprise captain's chair. Are you kidding me? And Pike's not looking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right.